Welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson, owner of TudorsDynasty.com, and this podcast will be my last in the series of Queen Elizabeth of England. It's been a couple weeks since my last episode, and as many of you already know, my dad has been hospitalized for a while and has had two surgeries since the last installment. Two weeks ago, I spent a few days back home by his side at the hospital. I'm very thankful to have been able to do so. This week, I came down with the flu, or what I believe is influenza. really knocked me out for the whole week, and this is the first time that I felt well enough to record. My lung capacity is not yet at 100%, so please bear with me. I also didn't have the normal amount of time to research this episode because of everything that's been going on, so I apologize for this truncated version of the story. With all that being said, let's just get on with the show. You have waited long enough. Sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and prepare to be transported back in time to the Tudor period, Elizabethan style. They were both female, both royal by birth, and both queens in their own right. But being cousins is what caused the most havoc in their lives, the lives of these two women. I am, of course, speaking of Elizabeth Tudor and Mary Stuart. It wasn't only the fact that the cousins practiced different religions, but that one was declared illegitimate in 1536 after the execution of her mother, Anne Boleyn. Had Henry VIII legitimized both Mary and Elizabeth Tudor when he added them to the line of succession, things may have turned out very differently for Mary Stuart. Well, maybe. In this podcast, I do not go into full detail on the cousins, but try to understand the relationship a bit better and show the differences in the two women. When I asked all of you on Facebook, do you believe that Elizabeth truly saw Mary as a threat to her throne, or was it her advisors who made her believe it? Here are a few of the responses I received from you. Lisa Pennington said, Mary was a clear threat because Mary wanted to depose and kill her. Elizabeth knew this too, but hesitated to execute a regnant queen. Nora C. Conley said, I think Mary may very well have been a threat, but Elizabeth was also a tad bit paranoid. I think the backers of both women were the real problem. If Mary didn't have a few powerful backers, she would have hardly mattered at all. Gail Trustee said, I think it was complicated enough to be a female ruler. Two of them competing was unheard of in memory. The men wanted them gone. They got one to kill the other and rendered the other infertile by making everyone she chose to marry not qualified, and they got the job done. Bethany Morris said, Elizabeth was not stupid. She knew she was a threat and learned information through her advisors, who of course knew that she had to make a choice over her life or risk her always being a threat. But that does not mean that she liked the choice in front of her. It weighed heavy on her conscience. Mary Stuart became Queen of Scotland at only six days old, after the death of her father, King James V. Elizabeth Tudor became Queen of England at 25 years old, after the death of her sister, Queen Mary. Elizabeth, nine years older than her cousin, was Protestant, while the younger Mary was Catholic. Religion became the force between the two queens that would ultimately lead to the execution of Mary Stuart. Mary Stuart had been queen of two countries, by birth, Scotland, and by marriage, France. Mary wed Francis, the Dauphin of France, on the 24th of April, 1558, at the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Francis was given the crown matrimonial upon his marriage to the Scottish queen. 
This made him the King of Scotland. However, upon hearing of this, the very powerful Hamilton family in Scotland joined the Protestants to oppose the decision to make Francis the King of Scots. The Hamiltons were heir apparent to the Scottish throne should Mary die without issue. They had a vested interest in the matter. The Scottish crown never arrived in France. During the last illness of Queen Mary of England in November 1558, the Valois family in France, or King Henry II to be more specific, saw Mary Stuart and his son Francis as the Catholic heirs to the throne of England. Queen Mary was a staunch Catholic, while her cousin Elizabeth was a well-known Protestant. As the great-granddaughter of King Henry VII, King Henry II of France convinced the young Mary that it was her right to inherit the English throne should Queen Mary die. It appears that the young Mary, only 15 years old, did not fully understand how she offended her cousin by allowing those around her to claim the title of Queen of England for her. Elizabeth, the elder cousin, was no doubt the better educated of the two cousins, while Mary was the more charismatic of the two. In 1560, while Mary was still in France, a Protestant and anti-France uprising threatened Mary's Scottish throne. English intervention on the side of the insurgents and the death of Mary's mother, Mary of Guise, led to the Treaty of Edinburgh. With this treaty, the French agreed to withdraw their troops that had been stationed in Scotland and agreed to recognize Elizabeth's right to rule in England, leaving Scotland in the hands of a coalition that supported Protestantism. Mary refused to ratify the treaty, which marked the end of the first standoff between the two young queens. Elizabeth came out of it triumphant, and Mary was humiliated and incensed. Then in December 1560, Mary's husband, who was now King Francis II, died, leaving her a childless dowager queen with no rule or status in France. Catherine de' Medici made it clear to Mary that her home was in Scotland and not in France, even though she had spent most of her life in France. So Mary's only choice now was to return to her homeland, Scotland. Elizabeth was concerned about her Catholic cousin's return. This was solidified by Mary's refusal to ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh. Because of this, Elizabeth was furious, and so she in turn refused Mary a warrant of safe passage through English waters upon her return from France. In a letter, Mary is quoted as writing, I am determined to adventure the matter, whatsoever come of it. I trust the wind will be so favorable that I shall not need to come on the coast of England. For if I do, then the queen your mistress shall have me in her hands to do her will of me, and if she be so hard-hearted as to desire my end, she may then do her pleasure and make sacrifice of me. In the summer of 1565, things became more heated between the cousins when Mary took as her second husband, her cousin, and Elizabeth's as well, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. This new marriage did not please Elizabeth because he was also considered a possible heir to the English throne, which, as she saw it, and her advisors too, was a threat to her life. For those not familiar with Darnley's heritage, he was the son of Margaret Douglas, who was the daughter of Margaret Tudor, Dowager Queen of Scotland, and sister to Henry VIII. Henry Stuart was Elizabeth's first cousin as well as first cousin of Mary Stuart. Henry VIII had excluded his eldest sister's family in the line of succession for unknown reasons, but it could easily be because of the rocky relations between the two countries or Henry's fear that both countries, England and Scotland, could be ruled by a Scot, or worse yet, a ruler from Europe. 
And the following summer, the Scottish Queen became pregnant with who would later become King James VI of Scotland and James I of England. By this time, Mary saw her husband for who he was, a drunk, a womanizer, and a complete douchebag. Mary, in her ever-dramatic fashion, had never hid her misery about her second marriage to the enemies of her husband. She even went so far as once saying, quote, unless she were quit of Darnley by one means or another, she could never have a good day for the rest of her life, end quote. I love how dramatic all of Mary's statements were. She really had a flair for it. Then in February 1567, Henry Stewart was found murdered after an explosion at Kirko Field. He had apparently fallen ill with either smallpox or syphilis, depending on who you talk to, and was suggested by Mary to recuperate at Kirko Field before returning to court. The night of Darnley's death, Mary was attending a wedding. When Darnley's body and that of his valet were found outside, they were surrounded by a cloak, a dagger, a chair, and a quote. Darnley was dressed in his nightshirt, which suggested that he had fled his bedchamber in haste. Suspicion soon fell on the Earl of Bothwell and Mary herself. In pop culture, we often see Bothwell and Mary as a love story. But according to author John Guy, the Earl of Bothwell never loved the Queen of Scots. He only loved the power that she brought him. The fact that he dominated the couple's relationship did not seem to bother Mary. She appeared okay with allowing him with all of her cares, something her cousin Elizabeth would never do. After the death of Henry Stuart, Queen Elizabeth wrote her cousin a letter that contained a warning. Quote, Madame, my ears have been so deafened and my understanding so grieved, my heart so affrighted to hear the dreadful news of the abominable murder of your mad husband and my killed cousin that I scarcely have the wits to write about it. I cannot dissemble that I am more sorrowful for you than him. I will not at all dissemble that most people are talking about it, which is that you will look through your fingers at the revenging of this deed. However, I exhort you, I counsel you, and I beseech you to take this thing so much to heart that you will not fear to touch even him, Bothwell, whom you have nearest to you if the thing touches him, and that no persuasion will prevent you from making an example out of this to the world, that you are both of noble princess and loyal wife. End quote. When Queen Elizabeth discovered that her cousin had not heeded her advice and went and married Bothwell, she was horrified. She had warned Mary that her new marriage was a threat to her Scottish throne. Mary's response to her cousin was that she, Mary, could not rule Scotland alone, like her cousin, because she did not have the same authority that Elizabeth held in England. Mary truly must have believed that she needed a man to be an effective Scottish queen. However, it wasn't long before, once again, some believe that Mary saw the man before her for who he truly was, a man grasping for power. On the 24th of April, 1567, Queen Mary was on her way to Holyrood after seeing her young son James. It was after that that she was forcibly taken by Bothwell to Dunbar, where she was, quote, ravished. Whether or not Mary was actually abducted and or raped is still hotly debated. Everything about the relationship with Bothwell was unliked and so if she wanted to make herself look better she really could have made up the entire story but we may never know only a few months later in june of 1567 mary was forced to abdicate her throne after 25 years of the queen of scotland she gave it all up her son was now king james the sixth of scotland after being threatened and forced to sign, she was quoted as saying, quote, When God shall set me at liberty again, I shall not abide these, for it was done against my will. End quote. 
Mary did not know before signing that her cousin Elizabeth had been planning a war to defend her. Mary was locked up at Lochleven and was accused of adultery and murder and was said to be unfit to rule. When Elizabeth was informed of what happened, she was furious. If one queen can be forced to abdicate, why couldn't she be forced to do the same? Elizabeth immediately sent for Cecil and lectured him for not being able to help Mary. Elizabeth threatened to declare war on Scotland again because Mary was an anointed queen, accountable to God alone. She wanted to demonstrate that a similar action in England would not be tolerated. Cecil warned her that a war with Scotland may cause those against Mary to assassinate her. He also knew that Elizabeth's anger over the matter would eventually subside. When Mary eventually settled into her new way of life, she knew all she wanted was a way to get it all back. She spent her days at Lockleven sewing, embroidering, playing cards, and dancing. After 11 months of captivity at Lockleven, Mary finally found her freedom with the help of some of those employed by her captors. Mary raised an army that was larger than her brother's army and expected to defeat him and punish him for his greed. Unfortunately for Mary, it was her army that would be defeated. After riding for 30 miles at night, she hid at the abbey in Dundrenan. It was there that she wrote an urgent appeal for aid from her cousin Elizabeth. With the letter, she sent a diamond ring that Elizabeth had given her in 1563 as a token of love and friendship. Little did she know that Elizabeth had just purchased a bunch of Mary's jewels from her brother, the Earl of Moray. Mary was impatient and couldn't wait for her cousin's reply. She hopped on a fishing boat to cross the Solway Firth, landing at seven in the evening near Carlisle, England. The following morning, Mary wrote a second letter to Elizabeth asking for her assistance in reclaiming her Scottish throne. Elizabeth was still sympathetic to her cousin's cause, but she also understood how dangerous it was to have Mary, a Catholic, in Northern England. Cecil understood all too well the danger of Mary being in England, and as soon as he heard, he placed her under strict guard at Carlisle Castle. Cecil was determined to see Mary not regain her throne and show that she was indeed responsible of adultery and the murder of Henry Stuart. Within two weeks of her arrival in England, Mary understood that her future was in the hands of William Cecil, not her more sympathetic cousin, Elizabeth. For nearly 20 years, Mary would remain Elizabeth's prisoner under the supervision of George Tabbitt, Earl of Shrewsbury. She was moved from one castle to another. Mary had consistently requested a face-to-face -face meeting with her cousin, but that day never came. The two women would never meet. Mary's downfall was the fact that she had become a figurehead for the Catholics in England. Unlike Lady Jane Grey with Queen Mary, it is believed that Mary was indeed involved in the conspiracies to remove the Protestant Elizabeth. Elizabeth's spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham, had created a network of spies to intercept Mary's letters. It was within those letters that Mary was caught plotting to kill Elizabeth. Mary was found guilty at her trial on the 25th of October, 1586, and it wasn't until the 1st of February that she finally signed the death warrant of her cousin. The decision could not have been an easy one for Elizabeth. She always appeared sympathetic to her cousin, but ultimately understood that she must protect her own throne from a usurper. On my journey to discover who Elizabeth truly was, I can honestly say that the only thing that changed my mind a bit was that she appeared sympathetic to her cousin Mary and the situations that she found herself in. Do I feel that Elizabeth was the best Tudor monarch? No, not really. I still reserve that spot for Henry VIII, but I do understand a little better why so many of you do. 
Now, before I wrap up, I do need to take a minute to thank all of my patrons on Patreon. For without you, this podcast would not be possible. I have one new patron from Twitter this month, Stacy L. Thank you so much, Stacy. All the money received from Patreon from people like you go right back into the show. The cost of running my website and research materials, including subscriptions to those hidden or hard to find documents. Believe it or not, I do have a full-time job, and this is something I do in my ever-decreasing downtime. Creating a podcast can easily take 15 hours a week, something that my family is not too keen about, but it's my passion and they definitely support me. If you'd like to become a patron and support my podcast and website, you can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com and click become a patron. For as little as a dollar per month, you can show your support. So I'd like to thank all the people who are currently patrons. Stacy L., Kim, Kathy, Katie, Rachel H., Diane, Joy, Lynn, James, Rachel D., Lacey, Angela, Azaria, Alithia, Anne, Maria, Cynthia, Lisa, Stacy, Nora, Wendy, Frankie, Ramey, Catherine, Carrie, Jen, Heather, Cheryl, Mary, Nicole, Tanya, Astra, and Melissa. Thank you so much for all of your support. Until next time.